Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Coming up today, a man is charged with the killing of Ashling Murphy. What you need to know from a social media perspective. How the reaction to her death forced one Tullamore man to take a very long, hard look at himself and others. And we're going back to the moon. Fancy living in space. More details between now and 12. When you call me, 0818 300 103 is the Midlands 103 comment line. You can text or WhatsApp. Powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. 083 30 10 103. Great to get your voice notes as well on whatever is getting your blood boiling. Or indeed, something positive. Love good news too. Would like to have more of it. And unfortunately on the front pages, well, it's all concentrating on a tragedy. A tragedy that has gripped the Midlands and beyond for over a week. And the front page photos are of the scenes outside the court in Tullamore last night. As you see, Joseph Pushka being led in to the district court. The charge was put to him at 7.45pm yesterday. He was charged with the murder of Ashling Murphy in Tullamore last Wednesday week. Charged with Ashling's killing, that's on the front of the Daily Star, again with lots of pictures of Mr Pushka, and uh, likewise on the front of the Irish Independent. But the main story there is pubs to be prioritised as COVID curfews lifted from next week. We'll come back to that one in a moment, but just a quick word on, I suppose, comments and, and very understandable anger at what happened uh, to Ashling, but there is now an individual who is before the courts and it's called subjudice, under judgment and when a case is under judgment you and I have to be very careful as to what we publish and it's one thing to be on the radio but it is just as much publication if you make a comment on social media and why does that matter you might ask and again we're talking in general terms if a person is before the court and they are going to trial, justice demands that they are heard by a jury of their peers, the prosecution and defence, and that jury impartially reaches a conclusion, whether it is that the party is guilty or the party is innocent. And a defence solicitor will be looking at social media comments for any case, not just this one, any case to see... Is there a view in society that this person cannot get a fair trial? Have people already made up their mind? So that is why it is very important to restrain as much as you may wish to comment, you have to hold back and allow the court to do its job. Now, back to this top story on the Irish Independent. So, pubs to be prioritised as COVID curfews are lifted from next week. The government seems very optimistic based on all the data from the Omicron wave. It is very much in retreat. 
and they are hoping, maybe even early next week, that hospitality can remain open beyond the 8pm curfew that has been in place since Christmas. At the very latest, it will be next Friday when that restriction is removed. And we are expecting an announcement on that imminently. Now, as for nightclubs, that's a slightly different story. It could take another couple of weeks. And then for mask wearing, for the return of, let's say, Six Nations rugby games, big GAA fixtures, that is going to be, again, possibly towards the end of February. Uh, but we'll have the full information for you, uh, hopefully, once ministers have their meeting and the Taoiseach makes his announcement afterwards. All right, what is inside the papers? Well, just a quick other word on uh, COVID-19. Frontline workers are receiving a bonus payment of €1,000. But that does not extend to GPs. And when you think of those you may have gone to during the height of the crisis, well, your first port of call before reaching hospital was probably a doctor. You went to your GP and they would have referred you, and and maybe this was just over the telephone, but they would have referred you onwards. And certainly they very much had their shoulder to the wheel and kept the acute hospitals uh, as free of unnecessary patients as possible. Likewise, though, arguments are being made for home carers, for pharmacy workers, for those who work in private hospitals. And dare I say, if you're working for Tesco, Lidl, Aldi, Dons and so on, super value, you'll be sticking your hand up and saying, well, hang on, we kept food on the shelves. Where does it end? The Overadcar is promising the payments to roughly 100,000 healthcare workers. You can do the sums, multiply that by 1,000. It does add up. Also announced yesterday, a new bank holiday. So this year, St. Patrick's Day will be a four-day weekend. The 18th of March will also be a day off. And next year, and from then on, St. Bridget's Day, or the first Monday in February, that will be the public holiday. Now, how do you spend it, of course? That's the question. Gambling companies are not following the rules, according to a new expose in the Irish Independent today. They say, oh, you'll need to verify your account, you'll have to have photo ID, you'll have to prove that you're over 18, etc., etc. Well, according to Adrian Weckler's article today, Boyle Sports was allowing betting and withdrawals without such verification. Paddy Power said a credit card betting loophole exists in Ireland because we don't have the same robust gambling laws as they do in the UK. Fintan Drury, who's a former chairman of Paddy Power, he has been a long-time critic of how gambling, has, and it's such an insidious addiction, how it has been growing as a result of online websites and apps which facilitate betting from the comfort of your own home through your credit card. So the government says it intends to restrict credit card betting through the appointment of a gambling regulatory authority. We have a lot of regulators in this country, don't we? How many of them work? The charities regulator is quoted in the Irish Examiner today saying they're now going to have proactive monitoring of charities. What does that mean? They haven't been really watching before. They waited for you to complain and only then investigated. Apparently so. 
We're also going to regulate e-scooters. The Irish Examiner reports on the National Council for the Blind in Ireland and the Irish Guide Dogs for the Blind. They're very worried about these contraptions going up on footpaths. Now, you don't see it a lot in the Midlands. There are a few zipping about, but in Dublin, this is a bit of a scourge, really. One of the proposals is a speed limit of 12 kilometres per hour would be introduced. And in certain areas, as low as 6 kilometres per hour. And while you can understand that from a pedestrian point of view and a safety perspective, if these e-scooters are to become alternatives to cars, especially in cities... Is 12 kilometres per hour fast enough to get you from A to B into work in the morning? Again, maybe if you're in the very centre of the city and you'd be at a bottleneck of traffic otherwise. But for most people, this is going to just make them useless. Maybe just a novelty. Anyway, would you like to live on the moon? It is, believe it or not, more than 50 years since we last ventured to uh, the moon, and that was Apollo 17. Eugene Cernan was the last human to walk on the moon. But according to NASA, we're going back, and this time we'll be staying. So you're familiar with the International Space Station. You see it's uh, zipping through the sky at night. It's been up there for 22 years. But now they're going to replace it with another facility, but a bit further out. Actually, way further out. It's going to be orbiting the moon. And it's seen as a bit of a way station or a stepping stone to eventually heading to Mars. So if you're a space cadet and you'd like to read about that, Irish Times. Speaking of space cadets, Boris Johnson says he's not going to fall on his sword, even if Tory rebels manage to secure a no-confidence vote. It had looked like, even 24 hours ago, such a vote was inevitable that his opponents had reached the magic number of 54 letters. That's how many they need to trigger a leadership vote. But, in a bit of a twist, one of his new MPs, who was only elected in 2019, crossed the floor to join the Labour Party. Christian Wakeford is the first Tory to do this since 1995. And you might have thought, well, the game's up. But actually, it seems to have galvanised his supporters and taken a bit of wind out of the sails of the opposition. So, will he be there in a week's time? He's the ultimate survivor, really, isn't he? A final one for you. How to become a millionaire? That question you've asked yourself how many times? Well, a 22-year-old has done it completely by accident. The world is really strange when stories like this can happen. So, this is a student in Indonesia, Sultan Gustaf Al-Ghazali, and he studies computer science, and for the crack, he decided to take some selfies. And then he priced them in cryptocurrency using something called an NFT, a non-fungible token. Don't ask me to explain exactly what that means. I think we'll get maybe our tech expert, Andy, to translate into plain English but anyway it attaches his identity to the selfies so that he always gets paid when they are sold and having put them up initially for three dollars some of the images are now selling for eight thousand dollars 
and he's made so much money that the tax authorities in Indonesia have already called him to say, Oi, you owe us some capital gains. And according to the Irish Independent, his parents don't even know he's made all this money because they'd be asking him awkward questions about where all the cash came from. Well, I think the cat is out of the bag, Sultan. They know now. Not sure if they listen to Midlands 103, but presumably they've found out by now. Anyway, next, how the reaction to the death of Ashling Murphy has forced one Tullamore man to take a very long, hard look at himself and indeed others. That story next. Fair question asked here on text. Will, how come people on social media are asked not to say anything about court cases, but yet papers are able to plaster images and discuss the case? Well, the difference is, that, and again I'm talking about cases in general, not just a specific case, but once it is in court, the details are given in court about the person's identity when they are charged and what they are charged with and then how they reacted when the charge was put to them if they had anything to say. And then a decision is made by the judge as to whether they should be held um, and, and, and in the case yesterday there is a, an individual now um, spending time in prison pending another hearing. So, that is on the record of the court, that may be reported. But where you go into opinion, where you offer judgment on a court case and you publish that, that is when a defence team could make the argument that whoever their client is cannot get a fair hearing because people have clearly already made up their mind and therefore a jury would be biased. That's the risk. So, yeah, you can talk to your friends, you can talk on the bar stools, but when you publish, that's when it becomes problematic. But again, just to clarify, if you're wondering why there are photographs in the newspapers day in and day out of various people before the courts and descriptions of what happens in court, you are absolutely allowed to report what is on the record, what has been put to the judge, or if there's a jury present, what has been put to them. Unless you're otherwise instructed by the judge not to publish. Anyway, I hope that makes it a bit clearer. Actually, a rather helpful text here from Mike, and he says, um, regarding social media, uh, the big difference is that media report the facts in the court, as and when they happen, social media tends to be a discussion of opinions as to what may have been said, what may have happened or didn't happen, and what should be done with an accused. And you cannot have that on a social media account, he says. Thank you, Mike. Anyway, back to that a little bit later. But on the general issue that the last week has confronted us with, and indeed in Dáil Éireann there was much discussion yesterday about... Attitudes to women, intimidation of women, violence against women. I want you to meet Damien McManaman from Tullamore, who, since last Wednesday week, the 12th of January, he has been reflecting very deeply himself on his own views, his own actions, and that of others. Damien, thank you for joining us. I will. Thanks for the invitation. And you shared this in a Facebook post, which has attracted quite a lot of comment. So... Talk to us about, I, I suppose, how you considered yourself and, and your own approach prior to the horrible events uh, a little over a week ago. 
Yeah, um, just can I just um, offer my sympathies to, to Ashling's family and her, her boyfriend, just first of all. Um, and I, I suppose I've been reflecting a lot personally recently. I, I'm a first year student in a loan of holistic psychotherapy. So um, just on reflection, I suppose I would have thought that I was a very understanding man as as in relation to women and their needs but I just I suppose I sat down last week and just realised I really didn't have a clue um, because just the fear that women feel towards men was just completely um, not in my radar so that's why I just felt I had to do the the post I suppose I did it as an assignment in college and um, the women in my class asked me would I put it up and get it out there because they felt it needed to be said one of the first conversations to surprise you as you arrived home on Wednesday evening was when you spoke with your partner and with uh, your mum-in-law, Greta. Yeah, Greta, she's a great woman. Um, she's from Geishel, Greta Clare, and she just, in conversation about what had happened, she just relayed to me about all the places in Tullamore she hadn't ever been down on her own in day or night and that was a complete shock to me as a man um, and then my partner Genevieve Clare she relayed other stories in a similar way and, and that was just completely mind-boggling for me to get my head around at the time Mind-boggling in that you couldn't have imagined they would be fearful because of do they outwardly seem like strong people? very strong women I'm, I'm blessed to be surrounded by very strong women in my life and just I, I suppose the fear I never could um, imagine how fearful women are of a man I suppose I, I would be a guy I'd feel that women wouldn't need to be afraid of so um, I, I just it was just an eye-opening experience for me for women like my mother-in-law and my partner and as the days were on female friends that I have just relate stories to me of experiences with men that I, I really had no idea was happening. And I, I, guess, I guess I was surprised that I was maybe so, um, just so unaware that this was happening around me and I was kind of maybe a little bit disappointed in myself that I couldn't have seen it before now. And that was the reason, I suppose, behind the, the article that I wrote. You shared some other stories that women had confided in you and, and did so anonymously. So, for instance, there was one lady you spoke to who had given up sport and given up cycling to school. Why? Yeah, like, that was another shock. I suppose I would have thought I, I would have been big into sport and GA when I was younger. Um, I'm Reggie from Mayo, and I um, just would have thought in my head that girls of that age would have, would have given up sports just because they didn't like sports as much as men, but... In fact, it's, it's totally different for that reason. Um, this close friend of mine just relayed the story of how she gave up sport. She was quite good at sport and running, gave up cycling to school, gave up um, playing sports because she had to wear a pinafore as a uniform and she had some derogatory remarks made by young males um, towards her underwear that you could see at times when she was cycling or playing sports. and she gave up sports for that reason and that was another real just eye-opener for me. I suppose it's been a week of eye-openers and, and that's the reason, I suppose, why I put up the post um, and 
feel now it's, it's really up to men and not women to change things. It's up to me, it's up to my sons, it's up to my friends to talk to other men and just change attitudes. You lay awake on the Wednesday night after Ashling's death and you were pondering many of these questions. Did you come up with any answers as to how, again, like-minded, right-thinking men, uh, to whom the finger isn't pointed, but I suppose to whom there is a challenge to to raise the bar, how we can do that? Yeah, I mean, you, you've summed it up perfectly there, uh, Will. That's just exactly what we need to do. Um, you know, it's only a, a small percentage of men, but women don't know that. So it's the key point. You know, women are afraid of all men that they don't know. And um, it, it, it's up to us, really, to, to spread the word and to spread the word among our friends. And if there is something said or something did out of order, then it has to be nipped in the bud at an early age. I suppose my own personal thoughts on it would be it would be great in school, even if it could be some kind of a class, that both men and women share their views on what it's like to be a young woman and, and even at that, what it's like to be a young male. I think that would go a long way towards improving things. But then, I'm not an expert, and that's just my personal opinion. Toxic masculinity are two words that don't sit well with you, you say. I- explain. Yeah, I mean, I would have heard toxic masculinity mentioned in articles and uh, on the radio, and I would have been really uncomfortable and annoyed when I heard, when I heard the words. But... Um, the more you think about it, I suppose men don't, and this is a big statement, don't need masculinity anymore to prove that they're men. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think that has to be eradicated from society as much as possible. Um, like, I'd be the first to admit that I wasn't this person that's thinking like this maybe last week. I wasn't this person a few months ago. But it's just the realisation, the experiences I've had and the stories that I've got from women like, I know a fellow therapist of mine just related a story to me the other day of just the amount of remarks from men when they're in treatment. Um, you know, and that's another shock. Un- unsuitable remarks, obviously. You know, and I'm not coming on here saying that all men are, are guilty of this. They're not, but it's up to us men that know about these things to change things. Hmm. When you say those remarks were made in in a uh, conversation to the to the therapist, uh, I'm assuming remarks ultimately ab- about women, and I, I'm wondering how many men make these remarks in the belief that perhaps they're funny uh, or that they're welcome, uh, that they're not crossing a line, because I suspect a lot of women won't speak up and give that feedback. Yeah, and that's primarily the issue. And, and I suppose what I'm saying now is that it's really not good enough to to, to make those remarks and jest. And I know I've had a lot of calls from friends and acquaintances the last few days and just basically saying that, that they're going to call out their friends on, you know, those unsuitable remarks and unsuitable things said. Um, you know, every male, I suppose, is part of a WhatsApp group of some sort that things are sent or said or done that maybe are unsuitable. I mean, I'm not saying take all fun out of, out of you know, the, the male-female divide, but I am saying just cut out the unsuitable stuff and just give a good example, I suppose, to our young males 
who really need um, role models in older males to follow for things to change. Thank you for starting the conversation, Damien. Let's see where it leads. And I appreciate your time. Thanks for me, Will. I appreciate the call. Damien McManaman from Tullamore. 083 30 10 103 on text and on WhatsApp. And I'd, I'd like to hear from women as well as men on this issue because... I, I can already see the responses, and uh, just to summarise some of them, that we cannot sanitise conversation to the point that there's no humour. But again, humour is so subjective. So what is funny to you, what is only a joke to you, might be actually very uncomfortable to somebody else. Or not, as the case may be. And then knowing where the line is with one person, where the line is with another person. You don't have a uniform standard if you're in a workplace or if you're in a group of friends. And how do we try and come to a common understanding on this? It's Anyway, it's a conversation we need to have. Damien has started it. Now I'll let you continue it on 083 30 10 103. Text and WhatsApp. You may recall before Christmas how we heard that teenage gambling had surged in recent years, where in the case of 14 and 15-year-olds, the issue had more than doubled since 2017. Uh, This is problem gambling. Well, one of the questions that many listeners asked at the time, well, how is this even possible? Because the various betting companies have safety procedures where you have to verify your identity, you have to prove your age therefore, and there's a limit an age limit as to who can uh, gamble. Well let's test this out The Irish Independent has conducted an investigation looking at a number of our big betting companies and its technology editor Adrian Weckler has the details. Adrian, good morning Good morning, Will. What have you found? Well, I found a couple of things. First of all, it is quite easy to bet using a credit card, which is a big no-no here in Ireland, according to the Safer Gambling Code set up by the Irish Bookmakers Association. And I should say before I continue that Ireland doesn't really have any modern gambling laws to look at the area of online gambling or gambling in apps or online casinos or anything like that. The government says that it's going to set up a gambling regulator probably won't land until uh, next year so in the interim they signed up to this thing called a safer gambling code and it has a few things like you're supposed to um they're supposed to check for age verification through photo id they're supposed to um not allow credit card betting well i went and signed up to a few of the biggest most popular ones and i found that it's quite easy to bet using a credit card um, and in at least one case, there was no age verification or photo ID required um, before I could bet and uh, withdraw my money. So how do we fix this? Well, what most people say that they're hoping that the appointment of a new gambling uh, regulator, gambling regulatory authority will have powers to for example, at the very least, mimic what they have in the UK. So in the UK, for example, if you take something like Revolut, what I was doing was I was op- I was open- opening an app, a betting app from one of the big uh, gambling companies here, and I was signing up to it. And then they would, what they ask you is, okay, well, how do you want to deposit funds? And there are a few ways to do it. But one of them is, is through Apple Pay or Google Pay or Revolut. 
Now, Revolut's used by over a million people in Ireland. Apple Pay and Google Pay, I am sure that many, if not most, of your listeners use that on their smartphone. You just load your credit card on, you go into a bar, buy a cup of coffee, tap your phone against the against the, the reader. It can be a debit card or a credit card, but many of them are credit cards. In the UK, um, Revolut, for example, is not used or is scarcely used for betting for exactly that reason, because um, there are so many credit cards attached to them and it's just too risky for everybody to, you know, to allow betting under the regulatory rules that they have there. There, over here, because it's just a voluntary code, and because there's no, as one betting executive explained to me, because there's no formal law here, and they don't really have to be that careful about it. So they just allow bets through Revolut. And in many cases, they'll allow bets through Apple Pay or Google Pay. So your question was, what should we do about it? I think the hope is that when a regulator is appointed here, that they will take a stricter approach and they'll look at the evidence and say, well, hang on a second. If you can bet using a credit card through Revolut or Apple Pay or Google Pay, well, then you're, not, you're no longer allowed to accept payment through Revolut, Apple Pay or Google Pay. Interesting question here as to what qualifies as gambling, because this caller says yeah. their son lost his shirt on cryptocurrency. Does that qualify? Oh, well, I mean, no. It is the brutal, hard, cold answer to that because crypto is a little bit more like, in one sense, the stock market in a sense in that you're buying Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever it is, Litecoin or whatever. You can do that in apps like Revolut as well, which is why so many people in Ireland buy crypto. And by the way, this thing about being it being an alternative currency is absolute nonsense. The vast majority of people who buy something like Bitcoin are doing so because they're hoping it'll go up by 20 or 30 percent in the next month and to make a, a quick kill, killing. Now, there are some people who believe in it and who are not doing it for that reason. But the, the majority in Ireland are. And by the way, it also tends to be young men, which is exactly the same cohort, which is the biggest demographic uh, for for gambling as well and gambling apps. Um, so, but it's a very good question. It's a good uh, analogy that your your listener has. I mean, in many ways, crypto is gambling. The only thing you would say is that with crypto, you might put a hundred euro into something like Bitcoin. You're hoping it goes to two hundred euro, and it might fall to fifty euro. But at least you still have fifty euro. With gambling, you could you you're betting you're betting a hundred thousand, five thousand euro on a horse. It doesn't place, it loses, you've lost everything. Not only that, you might have lost your family's savings account. You, you, you've, you've lost, you know, um, you know your, your kid's education fund. It, it's, they're different things. And I'm not trying to belittle the losses from crypto, but I don't think it's reached the pernicious levels of gambling um, losses yet. Mm. And presumably it'll be for the financial services regulatory authority to look after that uh, the gambling regulator will have its hands full with some of the traditional companies have they had anything to say by the way in response to your research yeah they did i was very disappointed in what they had to say the irish bookmakers association so what the gambling companies told me they said look okay we see your point that you can actually uh, bet through a credit card if it's attached to Apple Pay or Revolut or Google Pay. But the reason uh, that that happens is because 
mostly we can't tell if a Revolut payment comes in or an Apple Pay com- payment comes, we can't tell whether that's linked to a credit or a debit card. Okay, so that's their excuse. Okay, even if all the industry evidence shows that there are, you know, millions of credit cards attached to Revolut, Apple Pay and Google Pay, that's what they say. So technically they say they're not breaking the rules, the code here, because it's not a direct link to a credit card. It's only through Apple Pay or through Revolut. Now, I got onto the, uh, uh, the Irish Bookmakers Association, which sets this gambling code, voluntary gambling code, and they said they agree with the bookmakers. Technically, they're not breaking the rule. Now, to be clear, they're within their rights to say that, but it's very, very disappointing to me as somebody who's not interested, involved in the industry, but who has talked to a lot of people who make, you know, whose lives have been very, very hurt mm. by, by gambling. I, I spoke yesterday to, to Tony O'Reilly, who famously uh, did a, had a book out last year. He was a problem gambler. He lost one. He ended up stealing 1.75 million euro from his employer, all documented in the book. It's, it's a well-known uh, story. He's been out in public a few times because of his gambling addiction. And, uh, and at least part of the gambling addiction at the moment comes from things like loans and credit. Adrian, I hope your research is a catalyst for change. Thank you very much for sharing it with us today. Thanks, Will. You can read more in the Irish Independent. Adrian Weckler is technology editor there. Strong views as to who should receive the €1,000 bonus and who qualifies as a frontline worker. And we'll continue that conversation a little later. I will get to your messages and thank you for them. Quickly, though, in response to the conversation with Damien McManaman earlier and how men must raise the bar in his view... Eileen, you agree and indeed you want to thank him uh, for writing such a powerful piece. Words failed to express the emotions it brought up for you. The admission from a man that despite thinking he had a handle on women and their experiences, realising that there was so much more to our experiences, it brought me to tears. And I believe it's one of the greatest conversation starters to happen in response to a tragic loss. And another caller And I won't name her because she asks not to be, but her daughter would have walked a lot out in public, but now you are terrified for her safety. You were researching stun guns and mace spray, but unfortunately they are not legal in this country. Hilda, you feel it's not for women to speak up because the men who behave like this do not care for a woman's opinion. On text... Will, the guy who said that a sense of humour is being sanitised must not be very funny if he has to rely on derogatory jokes about women to make his friends laugh. From Martin in Mount Rath, a sheer mammoth task. That is the quote from the Irish Independent article this morning, describing the task facing Minister McEntee on violence against women. And yet in the Dáil, how many TDs were in attendance? Martin gives the figure of just 26 here for what was a vital discussion. Is that all it means to our male representatives? They didn't even bother to show up. I'll have to check the attendance, Martin. Was it as low as 26? Very surprised by that. Martin in Moat says, I think the day of putting your hand in and getting a free feel or a grope is gone and good riddance. Time for us men to call out other men who are out of order. Time for boys and men to grow up. I don't think I ever lived through a time when... You could just cop a feel like that and, and, and get away with it. Maybe I went to uh, 
the right places or the wrong places, depending on your point of view. Michael McDermott, good morning. Well done, Damien, on sharing your opinion, which is great to hear. I wish more men would join this discussion to help change the way that many men view women. Well, the conversation is underway and it will continue and hopefully for a long time and to bring about change. But then again, you've heard of watersheds time and time and time again and how lines in the sand will be drawn and so on. So what will be the meaningful action to come from a terrible tragedy? Let's see. Let's wait and see. 25 past 10 on this Thursday morning and how do you fancy looking out your window at the surface of the moon? Well, this could be happening in the next few years, although you will probably have to be an astronaut and go through all that rigorous training and be a member of the Artemis missions. What are they, Shawnee Morris from the Midlands Astronomy Club? Artemis is going to be the manned mission for what is NASA's building the space launch system uh, to get people back to the moon. This is actually going to happen in our lifetime. It's set to have someone set foot on the moon, both a female astronaut and a person of colour by the end of 2024 and return them back to Earth. There are people listening of a certain vintage who say, old hat. We've been there before. Been there, done that. Yeah, mm. it is true. Like 1972 was the last time Harrison Schmidt and Eugene Cernan were the last two to set foot on the moon. Uh, we haven't gone back yet because it was an expensive endeavour. There was a lot of other risks, but there was a lot of other things to explore in the meantime as well. And what is showing up in the press at the moment is this uh, word gateway. So the gateway is going to be where we're going to have a moon station orbiting around the moon, and it could be the gateway for a future Mars mission from the moon, not from Earth. Ah, so we'd stop along the way and, what, presumably refuel, restock? That's exactly what it'll be. Uh, currently, if you think about the International Space Station, it's roughly 400 kilometres above our head. Uh, it's been there 22 years. It's going to have a finite lifespan. That lifespan is going to be determined on budget and who it is that can keep it going. At the moment, it's four members, if you like. You've got NASA, the Russians, the Japanese Space Agency and the European Space Agency. Canada, the Canadian Space Agency, lends some equipment to it. But all of them are going to be involved in some way towards the Gateway mission. NASA's carrying it mostly because they want to be able to... They've got the tech to send a crew to the moon and back because you need a lot of power. Remember those missions in the 60s and 70s that went, used the Saturn V rocket? The largest rocket ever to lift off from Earth. Space launch system is going to be 15% more powerful. And it'll get there quicker, faster. It'll do its mission on the surface. It'll bring them back safely and send them back through Earth's atmosphere, back to ground in a much quicker span. But it's also going to be able to keep them there longer because it's going to create this gateway, which is going to allow them to live around the moon, come and go to the surface at different times before they'll have to resign to coming back if it's not going to be a long-term mission. But Gateway is going to be a refueled, resupplied outpost around the moon. Why go back to the moon now? What are we going to do there of value? Well, a lot of people have asked that, seeing as, you know, Earth has its own problems here on the ground, and why do we put so much money into going to explore other worlds and, and things like that? But look, we are a curious species. We always wanted to explore. Yeah, but the moon is never going to be habitable. At least there's some prospect of colonizing Mars. 
Yes, true. Uh, however, the moon does have its share of uh, contributions back to human society in the form of maybe mineral mining, excavation, things like that. That uh, it. Oh, adds. great! So we've destroyed one planet. But let's go to another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the flip side of looking at it like this, for sure. Uh, however, look, we've learned a lot from the International Space Station about how the human body wears and tears through living in space. Now we can put it to more practical uses, going towards the moon and explore Mars in the future as well. Although it does have its limitations too. What people may not know is that while it is dangerous to be going, f leaving ground, going to the International Space Station, you are somewhat protected in low Earth orbit by Earth's magnetosphere. If you go towards the moon, you're leaving that protective invisible sheath that protects us from cosmic rays and the solar wind. So this is going to be another further test to see with our nearest neighbor, how can human and technologies mm. uh, kind of coexist and protect each other for the event of the longer mission to the moon, uh, to Mars. Mm -hmm. What's the timetable for all this, Shawnee? Well, it, by the end of 2024, we're going to have the manned launch. Before that, we still have to see if the rocket can get off the ground. So NASA is hoping for a full dress rehearsal first or second week of March at the moment. It's going to roll out roughly the 20th of February is the latest I've seen that the space launch system will be completely kitted out, put onto the launcher that brought the shuttles and the Saturn V back in the 60s and 70s, wheel it out to launch pad 39B at the Kennedy, Kennedy Space Center and do a full dress rehearsal. Mm. So we should be able to have a launch in early 2023, and then we should have a manned launch early 2024, and the same year will be the one going to the moon. Exciting times ahead. Yeah. Back here on Earth, closer to home, how active is the Midlands Astronomy Club at the moment? Well, like a lot of clubs and societies, we're hoping to get out and about again. We're hoping that the second Freedom Day, if it's uh, announced for March, will allow us to have public meetings once again. But look, we've had a, a very active social uh, media outlet, if you like. People have been asking us coming up to Christmas about how to use this telescope or their son or daughter is asking Santa for a particular one, what should they ask? And even afterwards coming back to us, asking us, how do they use it? You know, we show people a lot virtually and sometimes in person, but we want to get out there and have those good hardcore meetings again. And with luck, we'll have our star party back at the end of April. You can look up the Midlands Astronomy Club online and on social. Shawnee, thank you very much. Thank you, Will. Now, Still to come on Midlands 103 this morning, the Portlaoise Petrol Head shall be here to catch you up on the latest motoring news and how one student, purely by accident and for the crack, became a millionaire overnight. One of the big issues of policy being debated here in the Midlands at the moment concerns the extraction of peat for horticultural purposes, not for energy, as was historically the case, but for use as uh, composting and, and in gardening and in horticultural settings. So, a case that is being heard before the High Court at the moment might be of interest to you if you have skin in the game. Let's get the details from Niall Sargent. He's an investigative journalist with Noteworthy and also with the journal.ie. Niall, who are the parties here and what's happening? Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So in this particular case that's ongoing this week in the High Court, the Environmental Protection Agency, which is the environmental watchdog uh, of the state, is seeking an injunction against Hart Peat, uh, a peat extraction company in County Westmead that extracts peat predominantly for the mushroom industry. They're seeking an injunction for Hart Peat to stop activities on uh, a site in County Westmead that the EPA says it is carrying on without a licence from the Environmental Protection Agency as required under national law. 
And what are the consequences of this, does the EPA suggest? Yeah, the EPA are saying that the, the activities that are, that are going on could be causing irreversible uh, environmental damage. Um, their senior counsel, Vincent Valentine, told, told the courts yesterday that the, the peace extraction is carrying on to such an extent that the EPA believes the bogs may never recover. Uh, and they say that the longer the activity is going on, uh, the bog is going to continue to disappear, he told the court yesterday. Now, the company, Heartpeat Limited, they're defending the case. How? Yeah, Heartpeat, um, their, their counsel representing them, uh, defending themselves in the sense of they're arguing that there is no requirement uh, for planning permission for uh, the activities on the site because peat extraction has commenced on the site uh, prior to 1964. So it's been going on their senior counsel said since time immemorial mm. um, and therefore because it was a, activity was on the site prior to modern planning laws coming into effect in the mid-1960s, therefore it is exempt from planning permission. They're also um, taking separate proceedings themselves, heartbeat against the EPA, which is going to be heard in conjunction um, for a judicial review of a decision by the EPA not to entertain a license application it had previously made. Uh, the reason that the planning side is important because prior to the EPA examining uh, any application for a license to them, you first need planning permission as stated under law at present. So that's the argument from Heartbeat in, in, in that regard. Yes, and indeed the outcome could have wider implications for the industry then. It, it, it may may potentially have to be seen. This is obviously EPA. It's, it's, it's the particular case that they're taking against against one company, but um, it, it would be of, of interest, particularly for the horticultural industry, um, particularly the mushroom industry. The Michael McDowell, the senior counsel for Heartbeat, said yesterday that you know any decision in the injunction case in favour of the EPA would be catastrophic, not just for his client Heartbeat, but also for the the mushroom industry, particularly in County Monaghan, that he said relies very heavily on a supply of mushroom casing uh, made with the piece from, from Heartpeat's um, harvesting operations. So he, he said that Heartpeat's continued operation is essential for the mushroom industry in Ireland, essentially. OK, so the two matters will be heard effectively in parallel. When does the case resume, Niall? Yeah, the two are going to be heard uh, continued today uh, before Miss Justice um, Siobhan Phelan. The injunction proceedings are being heard first and that will continue this morning and um, I think it may it may potentially continue for, for a number of days into the future. We'll watch with interest. Thank you for keeping us up to date. Niall Sargent is a journalist with Noteworthy and also the journal.ie. Here's an interesting question from Hilda. If we're going to mine all these minerals on the moon on a big scale and we're going to bring them back to Earth, well, how's that going to affect the weight ratio between the moon and the Earth? And when it comes to gravity and tides and so on, what sort of a hornet's nest do we open? Good one. John in Moat, if we're going to the moon, you'd build a prison there for people that, well, I can't mention this morning, but thank you. Uh, Will? JKL Street in Edenderry is now far too narrow for cyclists, so I don't blame them for using the wide paths. There has to be discretion in different situations. That's from Sean. 
and James in Portlaoise and this is becoming the big talking point of the day who deserves the €1,000 bonus for frontline workers to thank them for their hard efforts during the pandemic you say if guards, ambulance, firemen, carers in homes and caregivers are exempt from the bonus well it shouldn't be given to anybody because during the level 5 lockdowns these were the people who were allowed to move as long as uh, as well as essential frontline workers and the government described all of them as frontline yeah i think they've really opened a can of worms as one other listener says uh, because now there's division and disagreement as to who deserves a bonus and who doesn't uh, another caller says we'll get real we could all rant about loving a thousand euro when you sign up for nursing or, uh, and dental you have to take what goes with it and frontline workers were all brilliant so they should uh, include all in healthcare or none in healthcare is the message here the other person says I don't agree with the bonus scheme because so many people suffered during the Covid pandemic so many people had to make sacrifices healthcare workers chose their careers it's part of their job to look after sick so get over yourselves and get on with your job wow say how you really feel and Will why not use the 100 million euro being spent on this bonus scheme to instead build shelters for women who are trying to leave violent situations. That way, everybody feels they have contributed to something worthwhile. And after all, we each made sacrifices during COVID. That's from Catherine Kerwin. Thank you, Catherine. Now, how do you become a millionaire almost overnight and entirely by accident? Andy O'Donoghue, have you figured this out? Ah, well, it's always figured out too late, though. (laughs) Exactly. There there is, uh, there is uh, a young chap in Indonesia, a, a student called uh, Gustav Al-Ghazali, and he has been taking selfies of himself at his desk. So he's been snapping little selfies of himself at his desk, I think over the last four years or so. But it did strike him that he would turn them into NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, which are a type of digital artwork, essentially. And he put them up for sale. And um, he was charging um, the very reasonable fee of about two euros 30 worth of Ethereum, which is uh, like Bitcoin. However, Will, they captured the imagination of the world and collectors and his 4000 selfies have uh, have netted him over a million dollars, it looks like. So uh, (laughs) a remarkable help to his student loans, I imagine. Forgive me, Andy. I I still don't understand how the value can suddenly escalate from $3 to $8,000. Supply and demand and the laws of economics. Can you work it out? Well, it's about, uh, it's not really about rarity and it's not about um, intrinsic beauty, you know, like a great piece of art. What it is about, though, Will, is um, capturing a zeitgeist and it's about um, supply and demand. Uh, as as you say, and this has been happening over the last year, particularly as and really actually over the last few months um, as well. You will have these NFT collections that are launched, and NFT collections they tend not to be individual units; they tend to be a collection of ten, fifty, or thousand, or in this case four thousand. Uh, slightly different, but often the collection will be the same. 
but they're put up for auction and usually they start at a very reasonable price. But once you capture the imagination of these collectors, and there is certainly an element of the fear of missing out. There's a, there is a fear of FOMO about this. People start bidding them up and making offers for them and that drives the price crazy. There was once a time if you were investing you could study a company. Take Ryanair, for instance, and you knew Michael O'Leary's form. You could watch the progress and see how flights were increasing every year, the yield per passenger, all these different measurable returns, the underlying value of the business, and then make an educated guess as to how it would perform in future. But do any of those rules apply to products like this? Well, I suppose that it's an interesting um, comparison because investing is very different from what this is. And this is speculation. Within the crypto world, you have people who buy and hold or hodl, as they call it, H-O-D-L. You have people who buy and hold cryptocurrencies. The most common one, of, and all of your listeners, I imagine at this stage, have heard of Bitcoin. But there are lots of others. Ethereum would be the next best known. But over the last year, there's been a rise in these coins or tokens that are related to what's called DeFi or decentralized finance. And this is this whole idea that instead of using banks to process payments for your company or using banks to send money to your family um, uh, overseas, that you can do it yourself, you can do it directly. And those mechanisms have to be powered or funded by some kind of currency. And so these new currencies have taken on that role. But a couple of those currencies, specifically Solana and Tezos, have become very popular for creating, or it's actually called minting, these NFTs. And people buy currency and hold it. People invest in companies who mine it. And people collect this artwork. It's I'm I'm loath to call it investing, um, as in your Ryanair analogy, Will. It really is speculation. But people have made a lot of money, and people also find it enormous fun. What's the next big thing, Andy? Uh, I um, decentralized finance, unquestionably. And um, I bought my first couple of NFTs. Now, literally, it cost the price of a couple of coffee, uh, a, 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 a cup of coffee. Um, it was kind of that $3 kind of thing over Christmas. And um, there's a couple of wonderful artists. Um, there's an Australian artist called Joan Westenberg, and she even gave away a whole collection of NFTs over Christmas. And people like her seem to be doing exactly the right thing. They're promoting um, the rights of the artist. When, when these collections get sold, there's a royalty for the artist. So it's uh, sort of democratizing art like that. Um, Will, I think um, the art world has woken up to this. Beeples um, sold a painting for $65 million. Um, Damien Hurst, the artist, has issued NFTs online. No matter what people say, they're not going away. Um, but spend your money wisely and be careful. Indeed. I think it was Warren Buffett who's considered the world's greatest investor. He said, always stick with what you know and what you understand. And if I'm honest, this goes way over my head. So I think I'll keep my money in the pocket. Andy, thanks very much. Thanks, Will. Redcert.com, by the way. Andy's the founder and you can follow his blogs there. Well, it's very difficult to decide who is a frontline worker, says a text. For instance, taxi drivers. Taxi driver can bring sick people to and from hospital. Those who work in supermarkets and filling stations. 
without whom we wouldn't be able to eat, we wouldn't be able to drive. Then there are the delivery drivers who bring products to hospitals all around Ireland or deliver products to supermarkets. Are they just a commodity or are they frontline workers? That's from Fiona Nugent in Burr. Thank you, Fiona. Well, what about security? We are on the front line. Do we not deserve it? Great point, actually. Great point. And I had uh, occasion to visit Tullamore Hospital many times early last year when my father was there and the security guys, you'd feel lousy, absolutely lousy, but they'd put a smile on your face. They were great at keeping the spirits going. And uh, another message here says, well, I am a frontline worker. And that listener who said that you decide the job and you have to get on with it. Well, maybe you should go into frontline work and see firsthand what it's like. You get COVID. You lose your life or see a colleague do so. And then, then you'll keep your mouth shut because you don't know what you're talking about. And by the way, things would never have got this bad if the government had done their job right in the first place. Closed down airports when the very first case came into Ireland. Leo should have got in and helped the hospitals as a so-called doctor. I recall Leo Varadkar, he did uh, put on the doctor's scrubs again, uh, I'm not sure for how long, uh, during the early days of the pandemic, but I, I take your overall point. Um, and I knew that listener was going to rile people up. Unless you're working in a hospital environment, you probably can't appreciate fully the pressures that people are under. But again, it would apply to the uh, cleaning staff, it would apply to uh, the care assistants, it would apply to the security, to the porters, to so many, not just the nurses and doctors, dare I say. Or am I wrong? Oh boy. Can of worms, if ever there was one. So, from Nula, and thank you Nula for your message. Uh, was it an eeny, meeny, miny, mo choice who got this €1,000 bonus for frontline workers? Because she says, everyone who worked through COVID was a frontline worker. Everybody did their jobs. We applauded healthcare, but we don't single out just one section of workers and leave the others feeling let down by this bonus. Will, do politicians get the €1,000 bonus? Asks uh, James in Leash. Not as far as I know, James. Not as far as I know. A text says, Will, if I was bleeding, vomiting, needing my nether regions cleaned, could not breathe, and all of my other ailments, who would I look to take care of me? Doctors, nurses, care staff, ambulance people. These are the heroes of the country. Now, I appreciate all the others in society who keep the wheels turning, but for our frail human bodies, those are the carers who deserve the very best. And bless them all is a message here. And one more will. Postmen, postmen work seven days a week. Surely they deserve this bonus as well. Now, this is what happens when you thank one person and you leave out somebody else. It happens in speeches all the time. So you either include them all or you mention none. Let's get some other views on this. Catherine Cox represents Family Carers Ireland which is an umbrella group for carers up and down the length and breadth of the country. She's based in Tullamore. Good morning, Catherine. Morning, Will. Now, your members are not included in this €1,000 bonus. What case would you make against that? 
Well, I, I, the first thing to say, Will, is that, you know, we also recognise and applaud the work of uh, frontline healthcare workers right throughout the pandemic. Um, and what we're not saying is they don't, we're not saying they don't deserve it. What we're saying is, just as you said, there are definitely others in society that stepped up during the pandemic. And everybody probably d did that in some way. But for family carers, we strongly believe they have been that forgotten frontline in this pandemic because they did continue to care for loved ones, but they did it in their own homes. They suppressed the virus in their own homes. They kept people at home and they kept them safe. Um, and they did that at a huge cost to their own physical and mental health and well-being, something that I think we will see over the coming months and years. But right throughout the pandemic, they were ignored. They weren't prioritised for PPE, for vaccinations, for testing, despite us lobbying very hard for all of that. And now, yet again, uh, with this announcement yesterday, they've been ignored and they've been forgotten. And they feel angry, they feel upset, they feel hurt, and they feel unrecognised. And that is the story that's been going on for probably 20, 30 years in this country, that family cares don't get that recognition. And I suppose in the absence of adequate supports and services, we're saying at a very minimum, they should be included in this COVID bonus for what they've done and continue to do. Okay, uh, Catherine, let me stress, this is not my view, but I'm just putting mm -hmm. to you some of the arguments that have been made on the other side. And a listener earlier who is on the front line suggested, well, it's nurses and doctors who had to meet COVID patients in person and who day in and day out risked their own welfare and indeed that of their loved ones to whom they would go home. And as, as high as the bar is set by carers, they feel their case is just that bit stronger. I would say to that, many family carers had to dress in PPE for this uh, pandemic. Many of them have what we would consider a mini hospital in their own homes. So they are providing very high levels of care. They kept people out of the hospitals, so kept the hospitals free for people who needed to be there, COVID and, and other. So they really, really did step up during this. And as I said, in many cases, they were providing, they were giving medication, they were doing personal care, dressing, showering. They were doing a lot of what is and can be done in other care settings. So... We And again, I would say in the absence of a recovery package or any support package for family carers, at the very minimum, they should be included in this COVID bonus. Catherine, stay there for a moment, if you don't mind, because mm -hmm. I want to bring into the conversation Jackie. Jackie, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you were doing throughout the pandemic. Um, so I'm a dental nurse and... There was absolutely, like, from the very beginning of the pandemic, we were just working along wearing the normal face masks. Like, we, we didn't really know what was happening. Mm. We had zero support. We didn't know We didn't know what was right and what was wrong to do. Um, we were only wearing the normal surgical masks. Like, we had nothing else. Um, there was no changes to our our normal working day we just worked throughout with like as if there was no pandemic as if it was just normal um and i'm trying to imagine through the course of your work you would get quite close to patients and yeah. close in particular to their mouths yeah well like we we were working within the two meters obviously because <laughs> you have to work in the mouth and sure that's we all know that's where covid is like 
coming from is it the throat or the coffin and an aerosols and all of that. But like, like there isn't even any windows for fresh air in the surgeries. Like, so we were just in the aerosols all day, and it was usually in a dental practice. It's like every half an hour there's a patient, so it's every half an hour we're seeing a new patient, treating them with normal surgical masks at the start. And then mm. after a while, we, we managed to get the FFP2 mask. Some people, we were all fit tested for them, but some people couldn't wear the FFP2 mask. They failed the test, but they have to wear stealth masks, which was like a big, heavy, plastic, black mask that you'd actually nearly have to shout through. Yeah, I've seen so, them. They don't look especially comfortable, but I imagine they do no, the job from a, a cleanliness point not, of view. They leave marks across your nose, like there's marks on the cheeks, like they're... They're fierce, hard to breathe in. They were, they were awful. Like we were, we were then we we managed to get the surgical gowns and everything then as well. Um, we were kind of getting PPE gear in drips and drabs into us. Like we were wear, we were gowned up from head to toe, like what you've seen people in the COVID wards wearing. Like that's what we were wearing because we were in people's mouths. Like. And How we, nervous we were you throughout that period, Jackie, that you were going to pick it up? We were we were all very very nervous like at the time like we were all so scared we didn't know what to expect and it was it was really scary like we'd go home <clears throat> in the evening and we wouldn't see our families because we were afraid of bringing home the disease on our on us or giving it to our family members because we see we could see twenty patients thirty forty patients a day like um and any of them we've got plenty of phone calls the day after seeing patients oh I'm actually a COVID positive patient just so you know and plenty of our staff got COVID as well and we were down members of staff so we were working under pressure still seeing the same amount of patients but with less staff as were like people in the hospitals um, but there was never a mention of dentists or dental nurses or anything about us like I like, I think we're frontline workers. We're in people's personal space to do our job. And if anyone has ever got a toothache or had a tooth pain before, like, the pain is unbearable. And oh, yes, and, and they'll be very grateful for the work that you do and they'll be glad you didn't go away and shelter for months on end. You couldn't close up, like, you have to see pain. Hmm. That was just that. Jackie, I, I can't argue against you, and Catherine likewise, but... If there was an opposing view and, and some practical pragmatists are texting to say, we only have so much money in the country, a hundred million is already committed to this bonus scheme for a hundred thousand frontline workers in inverted commas. So can we afford to reward family carers? Can we afford to reward dental nurses, postmen, security? And the list goes on of people making the case. How would you respond to that, Catherine? I would say, can we afford not to? Um, I think family care has saved the state 20 billion euro every year. That is a huge contribution to our state and to our health services. Um, yet again, they get ignored. So I think this isn't all about money either. For family carers, it's about that recognition. And the yeah. announcement yesterday told them yet again, they're not recognised, they're not valued. The work that they do is not valued. Um, and for them to continue without burnout, they need adequate supports and services as well as being considered for this COVID payment. Is that how you feel too, Jackie? Yeah, definitely. Like, 
We just wanted to be recognised. We were never mentioned or talked about, and there wasn't even any specific guidelines set out for us. Like we were kind of googling things and stuff because no one there was no one to turn to like for advice on how to get through the pandemic and treat patients safely. Like like we couldn't test people at the door when they come in. We couldn't make them do an antigen test like for before we started treatment. But I'm sure in the hospitals like they do. The test, the antigen test, they're testing for COVID and they know for sure whether to have it or not. And then I know in the COVID work, they did amazing, the staff did amazing work there. Um, I'm not denying that at all, but like we've all put ourselves at risk. Mm. Mm-hmm. We've and had Will, a listener. Well? Sorry, just one oh, second. Sorry. We have we've had a listener who's making a very compelling point, and they don't wish to be identified, but they work in a nursing home, and it got to the point where they were sleeping in work so that they wouldn't go out into the community and risk bringing the virus in. And they and their colleagues did so willingly, but they're not counted for a €1,000 bonus. Can we maybe reframe this? And if there is a limited budget, and we have to accept perhaps there is, would it be more meaningful to, as one listener suggested earlier, take the 100 million and invest it in, let's say, women's refuges and uh, productive projects that would benefit all of society rather than giving money to individuals. How would you feel about that, Catherine, first? I I think I would feel that that may be something that could be done, actually. But just one other point, Will. Um, We know that home care workers who are not employed by the state, so if they're employed by private companies or indeed charities, don't appear to be included in this either. And I think that is really unfair um, because those people absolutely put on their full PPE gear, went into many different homes where there was COVID or where there was a threat of COVID and continued to work over the last two years. So I think that's one point. And in terms of, of course, we want to see more funding go into our health services and specifically, obviously, around supporting family carers, care safely for loved ones at home. So, yes, you know, absolutely needs more funding. But if government are going to do something around this COVID bonus, then I suppose we are saying we want family carers and home care workers other than employed by the state to be included in this. Final word to you, Jackie. Would you get on board if there wasn't necessarily a cash payment to some individuals, but there was a collective project for the country at large? Yeah, I think it's something that could be looked into as well. It would be beneficial for many people. Um, it would be a good idea. All right. I appreciate both of you giving us a call this morning. Catherine Cox from the, uh, I was about to say Carers Association, Family Carers Ireland, and Jackie, who is a dental nurse here in the Midlands, and so many other messages, which I shall get to in a few minutes' time. And Katie on Twitter, at 103WF, saying, Will, the Minister stated last night, the bonus is extended to staff within the HSE home care packages. Those staff are working in the same house doing the same job as family carers, and yet only one gets recognition. The Portleash petrol head shall be here very soon to update you on motoring, such as how the price of your old car has climbed 56% in the last two years. Well, certain models have. We'll highlight perhaps some of the biggest increases. And how the switch to electric driving could punch a €5 billion hole in the public finances. How? Speaking of hole in the public finances, I think this case for a bonus is 
growing legs and there's huge anger among a lot of workers who've been left out. Will, why don't the government members forgo their big pay rises and instead donate it to frontline workers? Will, home help didn't deal directly with COVID patients and that is the difference here. Thanks, Will, says a message. And a final caller, Teresa. My daughter works in healthcare. She picked up COVID in work. She almost died and still suffers to this day. A number of clients she cares for passed away. And yet, she is not entitled to this bonus from Leo Varadkar and his colleagues. Hmm. Let's change gears. Uh, because I don't think we're going to find agreement on this this morning. It is going to be a political issue for the government to try and grapple with. But another that the Dole discussed at detail at length yesterday uh, was the attitudes towards women following the death of schoolteacher Ashling Murphy. TD spoke on violence against women. Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, says there is no single solution to ending this. And the Fianna Fáil leader says education on sex and on relationships must become a priority in school. At the start of her career and at the start of a new year, Ashling was in the prime of her life and was looking forward to the time ahead. But as we all know, this talented and beautiful young woman never made it home. As a society, we have learned something of Ashling's life over the past week. A life which was evidently so rich and full of accomplishments. And we may feel that we got to know this talented and gifted young teacher and musician a little. The tragedy, of course, is that we will never learn what else Ashling would have achieved, how many more lives she would have enriched. Justice Minister Helen McEntee says she struggled this week and cried many, many times. The solutions will not come from legislation alone, nor can we tackle domestic, sexual and gender-based violence simply by treating it as a criminal justice issue. What's required is societal and cultural change. And the goal is very clear. Zero tolerance of any kind of violence or abuse against women. To prevent violence and abuse against women, we must eradicate the societal and cultural attitudes which make women feel unsafe. We can only do so by changing our own cultural attitudes to ensure that we're not bystanders, to make sure that we don't look the other way, that we call out when we see inappropriate behaviour, when we see it and everywhere that we see it. In the workplace, in the dressing room, in the pub, in the golf club, in the WhatsApp group. And Carl, I know so many men have been thinking about this deeply uh, over the last few days, over the last week. I've seen so much commentary on social media and otherwise. What I would say is we cannot do this without men. We need you to stand with us. We need to make this change and we need to make sure that this moment counts. Lee Shoffley TD and Sinn Féin Deputy Brian Stanley says women have the right to feel safe on the streets and in their own homes. We do need services to allow women to reach out whenever they are victims of domestic violence or other coercive methods. Nine counties, as has been said already, don't have a women's refuge centre Taoiseach Lee Shoffley, Lee Shoffley are two of those counties. I raised this over 20 years ago, as did others. Women and children in these two counties are being sent to refuges far away from their families, from their doctors, from their support groups and services. That has a huge impact. I've dealt with many of those families. Other people in this house probably have as well over the years. And appeal to you, we need women's refuge a women's refuge 
in Leash and we need one in Offaly. His colleague Louise O'Reilly says women shouldn't have to keep telling their stories. The men, to the good decent men in the Oireachtas, I would ask you how many of you can honestly say that you've never witnessed sexual harassment, that you've never been present when a sexist or a misogynistic joke has been told, how many of you spoke up? And the, the most important question is, will you speak up now? Will you, when you hear the joke, when you hear the sentiment, when you see one of your colleagues being degraded or someone from another political party, will you speak out? Will you call it for what it is? Will you stand up? Because if we don't stand up and acknowledge that violence against women happens because it happens in the culture that is created by people who don't call it out. Fianna Fáil TD Barry Cowan says his county has been robbed of one of their own. I'm a father of two boys and two girls. And I know I have a responsibility, of course, as a father, but also now as a legislator, to ensure young boys and men are better educated. I have a responsibility to know that we must better protect young girls and women. We, the elected members of Dáil Éireann, have to commit to ensure that we work day and night so that she is never forgotten. We have great pride in Offaly in saying that the faithful never die. And our footballers and our hurlers and our camogie teams too have a never say die, die attitude. And it is incumbent on us to make sure that Ashling Murphy's legacy never dies. Kildare South and independent TD Cahal Berry says the images of the first class pupils at Ashling's funeral really struck a chord with him. And I think a, a good way to, to memorise and to respect the memory of Ashling would be to ensure children will grow up than the one we had last week. That they will never have to experience intimidation or, or threats uh, or assaults or fear uh, for being a woman or, or, or being a girl. Independent TD in Leash and Offaly, Carol Nolan told the doll that the hearts of the people of Offaly were broken. Our sorrow has been expressed, our tears have fallen, our prayers have been sent, action has been committed to, but now we must ensure that that action happens. We need much tougher laws. I remain deeply frustrated by the fact that there is not a single domestic violence refuge in County Offaly. This, I feel, is a gross betrayal of women and their families that must be urgently addressed. We need to address the issues and move forward together in partnership and collaboration, not in bitterness and division. And independent TD for Leash Offaly, Carol Nolan, concluding that report by Midlands 103's Sinead Hubble. Hang on, hang on now, hang on, because we've waited... (laughs) We've waited a long time to actually have him in person on the programme. And I know this is radio and you won't get to witness this, but trust me, seeing Bob Flavin dance is a sight to behold. All revved up on Midlands Today with the Port Leash Petrolhead, Bob Flavin. Not quite as energetic. Not quite as energetic as when you're bopping to Queen on TikTok. No, that's true. That's true. There are music nights on TikTok music nights. How many followers have you now? Uh, 137,000, I think it was. 137,100, something like that. Can you walk down the street now and not be recognised? No, if it's a car person, not really, no. Or in like in an enclosed shop. The mask doesn't sometimes help. But the ma- often it's, it's, yeah. Like we went to town, went to Dublin last Saturday with the kids. 
and the kids and the, the wife just walk on now because they end up stopping for selfies and these are people who just you know because <laughs> oh. it's TikTok it just does something that people makes you famous overnight how much do you charge for a selfie <laughs> $25.99 per month <laughs> 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 oh, it's that kind of a self per month. Oh God, yeah. Oh God, you want to be a little sky bill these days? Just make money monthly. You can't make just one off. Like, so are you still driving cars? Yes, I still lower myself every once in a while to drive a car. <laughs> yeah. uh, what have you lowered yourself into today? Uh, the very affordable and very nice little Suzuki Swift. Oh, interesting. Standard, like normal feeling. It's called a hybrid on the back. I can't for the life of me figure out what part is hybrid because the engine's always on. So I'm only. They always had one point three petrols, as yeah. far as I can recall. Is it still? It's still one point three, and there's a one point five as well. So the one point five is in the Jimny, which I had a couple of weeks ago, which is absolutely awesome car. Looks fantastic, but it's tiny. It's like naughty scar. It's so small, but it's a brilliant little car. Uh, they don't put turbos in either one of them, so there's no turbo engine, and they don't have an electric offering, so they restrict the sales of Suzuki. They can't sell hmm. very many because they meet their CO2 emissions too fast, so they only keep a, a, a short number on the market. So there's only commercial Jimny, and it's, uh, Suzuki Swift Sport is also available, but there's Suzuki Swift and Sport, and that's it. I remember going back to the 90s when, you know, Toyota, Honda, all the Japanese cars really started to take off. Mm. Suzuki didn't. Yeah, conservative Japanese company. They've always kind of restricted their sales outside of Japan. They're very popular in Japan. They make a lot of micro cars, a little micro buses, and they make things called key cars, little tiny. They look funny, look like big cars that have been shrunk a little bit to look like full-size cars. So they've been expert at that for years. All they've really sold outside Japan in more recent times has been Swift and Jimny. And even Jimny last year, I think they only sold eight or 900 of them in the UK and then they stop supply because mm. they've reached their CO2 emissions. It's all down to CO2. They're, they're, they're very conservative when they do something but when they make a car it's actually usually very good. So the Swift you have today is it any good? It is. It's great to drive. Real good responsive. Tiny bit hard in suspension and it's kind of an old fashioned interface on the front but it has got Apple CarPlay when you plug it in so it does work. Five speed box won't cruise well on motorways. It does cruise well at 100 kilometres an hour but motorways it'll need a bit of fuel but it does say hybrid on the back I think it's mild hybrid. I think it runs just to I don't know air conditioning or something but the engine's constantly on we have a few questions for you already which we shall deal with in a few minutes but the big news did you miss me <laughs> are we, well you were on Zoom I was we, we was tackled a few issues there's something sort of disconnected about Zoom that is, is enhanced by being standing here looking at two plate glass you're prettier on Zoom <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> anyway first story the inflation in the price of used cars now, in some models, according to Don Deal, the value has climbed 56% in two years, despite all the mileage and whatever you yep. know, put up on the car in that uh, period. Which models are performing best of all? So it's still, in a funny way, we're all looking at electric cars, but it's actually still the diesel models and the up, upper ends of BW Mercedes. Those bigger end, high end cars are doing far better then the market, which is the electric end, which is the end that everybody wants to buy into, but nobody can get it because mm. there's no supply of electric cars at the moment. So it's it's the other, it's the proper luxury end of the car market that's actually doing the best amount of money. We've sold more Porsches in the last couple of years. Now we do have a Porsche dealership in Dublin, which is a big incentive. But we've sold a lot more Porsches in the last couple of years than we've outsold. The Porsche has outsold loads of cars in this country, weirdly, in its own little unique way, by just selling their, their 911s. You know, it, that's... We have a lot of money in this country and it does get invested. When we want something nice, we just get something nice. Yes, but I imagine probably poor sales fell off a cliff in 2008. Yes. 
and now the confidence is back and eventually they'll fall off a cliff again. Plus they have the take on, which is the electric car, so they can kind of ah. offset their, their high CO2 petrol models by selling more take So for those of us who aren't driving Porsches, what is perhaps more affordable but less affordable than it used to be? Uh, hybrids has gone through the roof, right? So hybrids is anything hybrid now garner a lot of money out of it as well. Um, the uh, like th- this year so far, we've been looking at everybody buying PHEVs, which aren't brilliant if you're looking to go battery electric. PHEVs that require a lot of plugging in. They're good fun, but there's an awful lot of plugging in element that goes on. With oh, I love in. mine. Absolutely love it because if you are diligent and you set the reminder and, you yeah. know, you can get in the habit quite quickly, then for your day to day short driving, you don't use any petrol. Mm hmm. If you need at the weekend to go a longer distance, you have that capacity. You don't have the range anxiety. Uh, okay, they're not as efficient in the colder weather yep. by quite a bit, actually. But uh, they will suit some people. Now, if you were commuting to Dublin, let's say, yes. you were working in Galway every day, not nah, by diesel. If you're driving a, driving a 520 diesel and you're driving up to Dublin every day, don't replace that with a PHEV. You're not going to, you just end up in a petrol station all the time, putting more fuel in it because they're very good. And like friends of mine have taken 330Es, which I think you have. Is it 330E? At the moment, yes. Uh, so friends of mine have taken those and have chipped them. So they've, they've it's like overclocking a processor on a computer, right? So you, you turn up everything inside the car and they're getting 550 horsepower out of it. And it's just the standard engine, the standard everything. So what they've done is turn on the hybrid end of it all the time. So yeah. it's always on. I don't think Colin Quinn would be happy if I did that. It's still his car. Oh, no. Colin, I bet you Colin Quinn knows how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, Colin, I distance myself from that remark. That's true. Yeah, he should do. Great, so, great dealership, though. He yes, definitely knows what he's doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, the question is, how long is this inflation going to last? And will a normal market resume soon? Yes and no. The problem with no is that the UK market currently are dumping all their diesels into this market. So people are buying diesels, by, they're shipping them up to Northern Ireland, register them up there. We're buying them as good little Irish people because we like our diesel stuff. And so we're still getting a dump of diesel in here. And the problem is we don't have anything else to offset that with. So with the drive to electric, electric supplies are really low across the world. Battery supplies, uh, super superconductor supplies, all those microchip things that are going on, that's all constricting supplies of electricity. So we have a problem with supply here because we can't just ring up Holland or Germany and get a pile of second-hand cars off them because they're all driving a different side of the road than us. So it's not that straightforward. We have to take them from the UK supply and the UK supply is also very low. Uh, talking to my motoring journalist friends over there, their used car market is also thinning out every single time it opens its mouth and they can't get supply because... Again, Germany can't make enough cars to supply. So the supply chain is causing all the issues. Currently, if you look at the sales in Ireland of, of new cars, it's kind of dominated by Volkswagen, Hyundai, Toyota, because they have supply. They have parts. They can get the cars out. A lot of car companies don't mm. have supply of that, and so they're, they're dwindling away. Like if you look at Kia, they can't get quite the same level of supply. Demand is huge. Can't get enough cars to supply it. Hyundai in particular seems to have planned well ahead. Hugely, yeah, yeah, hugely. Uh, they're not uh, so much constricted in Ireland because it's a distributor here in Ireland rather than being Hyundai Ireland. It's a distributor that's, that's as hi- trading as Hyundai Ireland. So their supply chain is a slight bit different and they seem to be able to get a bit more supply for the car so you can see a lot more Hyundais. Plus they have a huge offer. Like there's PHEVs, there's hybrids, there's electric. They've got it all covered and diesels. In a way, it doesn't really matter this second-hand value because you need a car, mm. so you're not going to sell it and keep the cash in the bank. You're just going to buy another one. Yep. 
it's a bit like changing houses. It doesn't matter if you do it at the peak or at the bottom of the market. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. If you sold your house tomorrow for big money, you got big money in your pocket. But where do you live? Mm. You have to buy something else that's going to be big money as well. Unless you're willing to trade downwards. And very few people are. I mean, if you, I was on Dundeal uh, last night trying to just look at all electric cars. So I just want to see how many secondhand electric cars are on the market. Just quite a few. The price is huge. Some of the old ones, like a 10-year-old Nissan Leaf is over €5,000. So a 10-year-old car shouldn't really be supporting that level of price. But it is the demand for electricity. And these are big mileage cars. These aren't small. Mm. Now, I know electric cars will probably do a little bit more mileage than a petrol diesel car. Due yeah, to fewer moving, moving parts. parts. But then again, the battery presumably only has a shelf life. Yeah, it does. Uh, the very older batteries might need replacing after 8 to 10 years. Now, they're Gen 1 batteries, the very beginning ones. And some of them even won't need replacing. Some of them still hold enough charge. There's people out there who get away with 60, 70 kilometres charge in their car. It'd be enough for them. Uh, so they won't worry about it. But the newer generation ones probably won't run out of charge. Or at least we haven't had any situations so far where the battery has lost enough charge to need to replace them. So we're OK with the new ones. Question. Could you please ask Bob... If a 132 diesel Honda Civic EX is a good buy, this is a full spec 1.6. That's all right, yeah. There's nothing wrong with Honda Civics. Now, uh, before you say anything, oh, by right, the way, okay. this is the car I actually own. I have a 141 version. Right. So, and it's I, a fabulous I, I'm car. rather rather fond of it. <laughs> this is Faulkner's fond of it. Car. Yes. It's the best car, and we should <laughs> definitely get one of them for sure. It's got to be holding its value superbly well. Actually, in fairness, it is actually a good car. Honda Civics have always been pretty good cars. Hondas are totally reliable. Like Very little happens mm. to a Honda that ever breaks down, no matter its history even. I, the only cars I've ever seen survive track days, driving on, do 100 laps and drive home again, is Hondas. Like Everything else ends up with burning oil as above it. So Hondas have always been pretty good. A diesel engine does require a little bit more servicing than the petrol engine. But other than that, it's a, it's a 100% buy, yeah. Yeah. And, and plus, Will has one that's worth a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> they're fully loaded as well. If you're getting yeah, the yeah. EX model, that's a fabulous car. I think it probably has the leather the interior, the heated yeah. seats. Uh, we have the estate one, and it can swallow a fridge freezer. Yeah. You know, it's just massive. When Honda was really good, they lost a lot of, you know, the flippy up seats and all the things mm, in the back seat. Mm. Flipped that's all gone. That all disappeared out of Honda to make them more affordable. But in the older days, you would flip up the back seats and even the passenger seat flipped up and you put big tall things in the back seat and stuff. It was all very clever, but it's all disappeared now. Yeah, it swings and roundabouts. So, yeah, the new model, I don't think, is as practical and certainly the looks are more polarising. Mm. The, the hatchback especially, the saloon is probably a safer bet. But the build quality inside is definitely better in the yeah, newer ones yeah. the driving experience you sit a bit lower so it's nearly that go-kart effect in the newer ones yeah. so it depends what you're looking for if you like the age a lot of people like JDM cars so Japanese manufactured cars a lot of those a lot of those those people out there who like that look don't like German cars because they like that Asian feel to the whole thing. You know, manga cartoons, Japanese mm, writing, mm. they get the tattoos in Japan. So they're into that sort of stuff. So Honda suits that perfectly. Some of the faster Toyotas suit that as well, although they've gone a little bit more European than they used to be. Nissan are still sticking with the kind of Japanese look to it as well. And so are Kia, even though they're Korean. You look at the new Sportage, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of Japanese going on in the front of that new Sportage. So yeah. they're very different from what they used to look like. Yeah, the newer Civic is more conservative on the inside mm. than the 132 version this person's talking about because the older one has the split dash. Yeah. So you can see the rev counter and the temperature gauge and the fuel gauge through the steering wheel. But then up above that, 
on the upper dash that's the speedo and the clock and all of the other bits and the pieces bits. <laughs> yeah and it works quite well like uh, whereas the, I only have a rev counter no speedo whereas the new one just has all the dials in the usual place yeah which is it's a bit hard to find anything remarkable on the market now particularly because a lot of car companies are making their parts for other car companies. So a lot of car companies are working together on things now, which is a lot more affordable, should make cars cheaper. Unfortunately, cars are getting more expensive. But um, it's very hard to find something a little bit more unique. You can tell it by the marketing speak that comes out. It used to talk about the unique features of the car. Now to talk about how far it can go on electricity or how far it can do, you know, more technical stuff comes into it. There was once a time when you would go out, and not you personally, have a few drinks, maybe get the taxi home, be very responsible, and the next day get up and, well, if you had a bit of a sore head, you'd still hop in the car and go to work. But how many people are prepared to take that risk now? Let's find out after the... Up on Midlands today with the Port Leash petrol head Bob Flavin. Bob Flavin is here. You can find him on TikTok and indeed on YouTube. And what are the latest car reviews up there at the moment, Bob? Uh, there's a Mini Cooper convertible. The one that's very popular moment is Kia EV6, which is doing very well. And there's another video where I kind of discuss. It's a Volkswagen GTX called, but. We actually discussed the kind of charging infrastructure or what's happening there. Or lack thereof. Uh, yeah, lack in places uh, and some of the places that just... I, I've coined a sort of a new phrase. I don't know whether I coined it or not or I read it somewhere and it's just come out of me. It's charging uh, when, when you get... It's, it's infrastructure stress, right? So when you're going to a, to a charge point, so a charger anxiety is what it's actually called. But when you're going to a charge and you don't know, is it going to be free? Is it open? Is it working? Is there a queue at it? That's the anxiety. It's not the range of the car anymore. Now it's about the charger itself, whether that's actually going to happen. You can check on an app you can, in advance. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I've, I've had a couple of situations that I've read a few people online who've had a couple of situations where it shows it's free and when you get there, there's actually someone there or it's out of order. Just because when the communications break down, it shows its last state. So oh, right. if, if it goes offline and the communications finish as well, it means that the thing is showing that it's empty and there's nobody at it, but it actually it's not working at all when you get there. Order someone there and it's working. Um, Joys. That's the charger anxiety. But it, it is changing. The infrastructure is getting better. And over the last five years, it has been a phenomenal, remarkable change to it with advent of Ionity and other companies that are coming to the country as well. And the plans, if all the plans pan out, is going to be huge. Unfortunately, ESB Networks, the ESB Ireland, has been hampered over the years by lack of investment. They just haven't got enough money to do it. Here's a question from, while we're on the subject, from a listener. So when you go and you use a charger in a public area, such as uh, Lister Square in Port Leash, do you have to pay the parking in addition to paying for the electricity? This comes up a hell of a lot, even for me. Every council is different and sometimes every town is different. So Dublin tends to charge you for parking while you're charging. So you've got the two, if you're, if you're charging on a street, that is. Uh, Leash doesn't because they give you 45 minutes free anyway of anyone can park mm. 45 minutes in Port Leash. Even an hour free in Tullamore as well. Yeah, so it's, it's the same principle would apply there for charging. So they don't charge you for that. Now, we haven't had a situation where someone's charged long enough to see the way they actually get a charge by. But I know someone who was charged uptown in Leicester Square for two and a half hours because the only charge they could get to uh, and they filled their entire tank and didn't get a parking ticket. So it's hard to say every council is different. Mm. Some of them do charge for parking, other ones don't. But mostly at the moment, I think people just allow anyone to park. And most of the towns in Ireland allow at least 45 minutes to an hour of parking without a ticket. I have to say, I love parking tag. 
you go to Athlone, you go to Mullingar, you go to Port Leash, various places in Leash and Westmeath, mm. you can use it. It's genius. Awfully County Council. Why haven't you embraced parking tag? <laughs> I know, it's amazing when they don't, when there's a simple technology, a simple answer to all your questions mm. and they don't want to do it. Because it saves you having to fumble around for change. Yeah, yeah, and if yeah. you don't have it, then you're going into a shop and you're trying yeah. to break a tenor and then you don't have a tenor because Can we're all cashless. And Cork, anyway. West Cork, same thing. Went down to West Cork, got to this parking area. It's one fifty an hour. Couldn't find someone to find out where the money is. One of the shops was closed. No parking tag. Just like the dark age. It feels like the dark age as well. <laughs> Will, can I ask Bob how long it takes to receive a change of ownership logbook back in the post from the department? Because I'm waiting six weeks at the moment. Oh no, 14 working days. Any more than that, and should call Shannon and get that sorted out. They'll probably, there's a reason behind that. There's some query, there's something after happening. Something has been misplaced in the post. They're very efficient on it, Shannon. Generally, you get it back within 14 working days, which should be at most three weeks, really. So to this question I posed earlier, Having a night out, getting up the next day with a sore head. Are you going to chance it, getting behind the wheel, if you could be over the blood alcohol limit? Well, the answer is reasonably encouraging because there's only a very small minority who would. It is, yeah. According to the EA this morning, it's one in ten motors would take a chance in the morning. And this is this is down. I mean, if, if I go back to when my dad was driving us around, he would drink drive. Like, that was normal. And it was... Like an old wives' tale, they were better drivers when they had a few pints in them, you know what I mean? So it was mad, mad stuff back then. There are some people who believe that, but we put it to the test, gosh, 12 years ago now, at Mondello, and it was a really arduous piece of research by me where I had to get drunk. And, oh, I like these uh, yes, odds. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but what happens is you believe after, let's say, the first drink, oh, I have to concentrate harder now, and therefore I'm going to be better. But we could measure it in reaction times. Mm. It's a fallacy. Definitely, yeah. And it's the same for drug driving. It's sl- Anything that slows your metabolism down, slows down your thinking, will slow down your reaction time in cars. And although 99% of the time you're totally safe on the road, there's that 1% of the moment where you have to react quickly. And without that quick reactions, it's going to be all over. But from the AA advice stuff, it really it still makes for slightly worrying reading in that anyone would risk it the next morning after a heavy night out, particularly around a Christmas time where you've had a heavy, heavy night out. Time to get in the car the next morning and you're just going to kind of chance it and know you're going to sober up after a couple of coffees, which you won't actually. You don't sober up. It's just time is the only thing that makes you sober up, really. It's a worry. Bob, unfortunately, we're out of time. There is a big discussion that we don't have the space for today. And it's how are we going to plug the hole in the public finances when eventually the majority of us are driving electric cars? That excise from petrol and diesel, mm. how's that going to be replaced? Disappearing down a five billion euro hole. That's where that's going. <laughs> Once we all go electric, that, that money. And you know, you know what, Exchequer, if you want to take money from the Exchequer, they ask you how to replace it. So it has to stay the same. So five billion quid is going to disappear. They're going to have to get it from somewhere. Well, you can take your five billion euro hole and get out of here for now. <laughs> good to be back, Will. It's good to be back. <laughs> We're not discussing a topic like that today. Bob, thanks very much. No problem at all. Bob Flavin, you'll find him on TikTok, on Instagram, where he looks really pretty, and also on YouTube for the latest reviews. Thank you, Sinead, for doing all the hard work. We shall be back on your radio tomorrow morning from nine. By the way, if you haven't tried to turn a tenner into €4,000, well, thanks to expert electrical in Tullamore, check out midlands103.com right now. The very best of luck. Carl is next with the Afternoon Show. Midlands 103. 
Midlands Today on Midlands 103 with Bus Erin. Get better value using the TFI Go app for the Bus Erin at Lone Town Services. See transportforireland.ie.